Before we get started, let's get our minds right, bow our heads, and pray. Father God, thank you so much for this Bible study, for this ministry, for this church, uh, for the heart here that exists to want to know more about you and to know more about your word. God, we thank you for this opportunity. We ask that you open up the scriptures to us today and help us to see the bigger picture uh, of who you really are. God, we just ask that your Holy Spirit would be dwelling in and among us uh, and that it would come fill us up today as we really get a glimpse of your plan. God, be with us as we finish this study and move towards a different understanding, um, moving towards a different book and grasping the whole of your scriptures and how they come together. God, thank you for this awesome, awesome chance to know more about you. In Jesus' name, amen. So chapter 20, we finished up last week in in chapter 19. You got to see Jesus has returned. You saw what that picture looks like as you piece the the pieces of scripture together to see the full panoramic view of what that looks like. From Zechariah and Acts, you can see that Jesus will return to the Mount of Olives. When he does, the Mount of Olives will split into two. A valley will run in between uh, the Mount of Olives where it's split, and he will head on his white horse down to the Valley of Jezreel to the ba- at the base of Mount Megiddo uh, to face the Battle of Armageddon where he will take out his enemies, and after this he will set up his kingdom and we will reign with him. Uh, We didn't get a chance to talk about this, but I would recommend reading, if you haven't, um, through this study, reading Matthew 24 and 25. Uh, You will see before the kingdom gets set up, there will be a judgment called the judgment of the sheep and the goats, where Jesus is setting up the nations for his millennial kingdom, and he's basically punishing those who were not kind to his people, the Israelites, and blessing those who were. And so that's where we are. Jesus is back. He's setting up his kingdom. And chapter 20 of verse 1 is where we kick off from that moment. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So the first thing we see is from chapter 19, you know that Jesus comes back, there's this bloodshed, and he has gotten rid of all the evil on the earth. He has cast the false prophet and the Antichrist into the lake of fire. Now you see an angel coming out of heaven, grabbing Satan, throwing him into the bottomless pit, and chaining him up for a thousand years. All right, so pay attention to that phrase, a thousand years, because I bet you're going to hear it a lot in the next coming seconds. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up, set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw the thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. 
but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part of the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So you heard that phrase a thousand years six times, or I'm sorry, maybe seven. I don't I didn't count, but six or seven times just within six verses. I think God is trying to tell us something about how long this kingdom will last. I think it's going to be a thousand years. Now, I joke with you about that because there's actually different views about what this is. So let me just sort of run through those really quick. There's the premillennial view, which is the view that I hold, which states that there, the time bef- we are premillennial, meaning we are before the millennial reign of Jesus, meaning Jesus will physically come back and reign on earth for a thousand years, which is what is described here in chapters 19 and 20. The tribulation is before that, just like is chronicled throughout the book of Revelation. So it simply means that you take the position that this is still future and to be held and will come after the tribulation period. Jesus will return and reign with us, with the tribulation saints and with the Old Testament saints for a thousand years on earth physically. That's the premillennial view. Now there's the postmillennial view, which is that the church is actually the brings about the millennial kingdom. So the church exists, and basically the idea comes from the parable of the mustard seed, which is the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Um, It starts out small like a mustard seed, but then it just grows and swallows up everything around it. And so the idea is that the church is representing the kingdom of heaven on earth. And it starts out small, and it grows and grows until it takes over the whole thing, and then the, the world will get better and better until uh, we have created an environment through the church and through massive revival and things like that um, that will create a, a place for Jesus to reign and then he will return. Uh, this view was particularly popular during the Industrial Revolution uh, in the 19th and early 20th century. What happened with this view is it's gone... It went away for a while and it became almost non-existent and it sort of creeped back out uh, into what is now called dominion theology. But the idea is uh, that it's an extremely optimistic view. The church will take over, Christians will be heads of state all over the world, and there will be an environment that creates the utopia for Jesus to come and reign. Now, the reason that this view started to die out is because while the Industrial Revolution brought a lot of optimism. We saw a lot of technological advances and things happening on Earth. Then World War I happened. Then the Great Depression. Then World War II happened. Um, and then there's been constant chaos and disruption since the Middle East, around the Middle East and surrounding the whole world. Since World War II, we've dealt with the Cold War and even new geopolitical shifting in the world now. And so it doesn't seem like the world's getting better. It seems like the world is getting worse. And that actually fits the description of other pieces of scripture. So the thing about Revelation is you can't isolate it by itself. You have to look at the whole of scripture and how the whole picture is painted. 
um, and how everything comes together. Now, in when Paul was writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy, he pointed out that at the end, when the days the day of the Lord is coming on people, when the end is coming, that people will lean towards evil. They will be lovers of themselves um, and denying God. They'll have a form of godliness, but denying it, right? And so it actually points, Scripture actually tells us that at the end, things will be moving towards worse. And if you look at the Revelation chapters 2 and 3, as we discussed, if those are a picture that's of the church through the church age and its history, as we get to Laodicea, we start seeing the church utilizing Jesus' name, but not inviting him into the house. And he stands outside and the gospel really isn't preached. They're just using Jesus' name to push forward humanistic efforts. And so the picture is painted that it looks more like the premillennial view. But the idea behind the postmillennial view is this sort of massive revival in the world coming together in some sort of unity and peace underneath the Christian type um, philosophy setting up the world for Jesus to come. I don't really agree that that's the picture that's painted. Then there's the amillennial view. The amillennial view is very is somewhat similar to the postmillennial view. It's that the thousand years is not really, it's just a frame of time. It's not really a thousand years. It's just figurative. Um, and the church is the one that sets up the kingdom. The church is the representative of, of Christ as the body of Christ on earth. And we go and fill the earth. But the problem with both the postmillennial view and the amillennial view, which I'm not going to really dig into a ton of detail, is that they ignore the promises to Israel and place them on the church. And I'm really excited when we get into Genesis to talk about some of the covenants that God had in the Old Testament with his people Israel and how they are directly related to specifically Israel and how that ties in with Romans 9 through 11. Because Paul spent time in his great work of theology in Romans talking about what it means to be a Christian. He separated Romans 9 through 11 to talk about the eventual plan for Israel. And Israel is not forgotten, and Israel's promises are still meant for Israel. And so we'll see a little bit about this. Now, verses 1 through 6 tells us that there will be a millennial reign. Jesus will reign for a thousand years. But that's about all the detail we get in Revelation. So is there other detail that we can reference to know what this thousand years will look like? Well, lucky for you, the answer is yes. So I'm going to read to you some of the descriptions of this time period that are found in Old Testament prophecy. So this is from Isaiah chapter 11. So pay attention to what this sounds like and what this millennial reign of Jesus will look like. It says, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots. So Jesse is the father of David. Jesus is a descendant of David, therefore a descendant of Jesse. This is talking about Jesus. A branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and light, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with his with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips, he shall slay the wicked. That looks very similar to the picture in Revelation 19. Jesus returns with a sword coming out of his mouth, and he destroys the wicked. 
And it says here, he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall slay the, the wicked. Righteousness shall be his belt, shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt of his waist. Now we get a picture of what this looks like. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and fatling together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, and waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is talking about even in the animal kingdom, peace will exist, much like you saw in the book of Genesis before the fall of man, right? This, even kids will be able to play with cobras and snakes and stuff. And this is a pretty cool picture of what this world will look like. Now, Psalm 22 is also known, or 72, sorry, Psalm 72 is also known to give us a glimpse of the millennial kingdom. It says this, Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the son. He will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. This sounds very similar to what we just read in Isaiah. The mountains will bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and will break in pieces the oppressor. They shall tear you along. They shall fear you as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. He shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing, like showers that water the earth. In his days, the righteous shall flourish in the abundance of peace until the moon is no more. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him and his enemies will lick the dust. So this is another very similar to what we read in Isaiah chapter 11. This is a little piece from Isaiah chapter 65. I would actually recommend reading that chapter in general just to get a glimpse of what this looks like. But verse 20 in particular says this, No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. So this is basically saying, if you live to be 100 years old and you die at 100 years old, that'll be considered an early death because life will last for so long in the millennial reign. And Daniel chapter 7 also paints the picture of this dominion that God will have. Uh, particularly verses 13 and 14. It says, I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man, which is a title that Jesus gives himself constantly. He says it in Matthew a lot and Luke refers to him as the son of man over and over. Coming with the clouds of heaven, which is very similar to the picture we see from Zechariah 12, the picture from Acts 1 when he says he will return in the same way that he left. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, then that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, 
which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. So we've seen these pictures of this everlasting glorious kingdom where there is just un, unequivocal peace from anything we've ever seen before, even in the animal kingdom. And then I want to lead you to one more chapter, Micah chapter 4. It's titled, The Lord's Reign in Zion, with the subtitle here. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on top of the mountain and shall be exalted above the hills. It's talking about Mount Zion. And peoples shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion, the law shall go forth and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is going to be the capital of this new world kingdom that Jesus will reign from. He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So war will be a thing of the past. They will take weapons and turn them into farming equipment because war is unnecessary at this point forever. But everyone shall sit under his vine, under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid for the month of the Lord of the hosts. For the mouth, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken for all the people walk in the name of his God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord, our God forever and ever. So that's just the first five verses of chapter four. And the fig tree is often representative of Israel. So if the capital is going to be in Jerusalem, the country of Israel will be the leading nation. Everyone will be under the fig tree where Jesus reigns. And so that paints a picture of what this millennial kingdom looks like. And so we get a small glimpse of it in verses 1 through 6, but you see from the Old Testament when you piece the puzzle together, you get a better view of what this glorious kingdom that we look forward to. This is why we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because during this kingdom, heaven will touch earth. And earth will be under the reign of Jesus. War will not exist. Peace will exist. And people will be following the example of Jesus in every nation and tongue. That's why we pray that in the Lord's Prayer. That's why it's so beautiful and why it's the great hope of Christianity for the second advent of Jesus. So let's move into the second section, picking up in verse 7. So that's the millennial reign of Christ. What happens then? Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. So first of all, let's deal with the elephant in the room. Satan has been bound for a thousand years. Temptation and wickedness and evil have been gone. Jesus has reigned. At the end of this kingdom, 
There will be one final temptation. Satan will be released to tempt the people of the earth. Why is that even necessary? Why was it necessary in the first place? Why was Jesus? Why was Satan allowed to roam the earth at all? I think the opportunity for evil has to exist because if the opportunity for evil doesn't exist, then man doesn't have a choice. And so certainly there will be some remnant at the end of the tribulation period of people who didn't accept Christ, but also didn't accept the mark. There will also be people born during the millennial kingdom who have only known the perfection of the world and have never been tempted to turn away from Christ. And so they never made a decision to accept him or to love him. It's just been what was. So if they've never been tempted to turn away from him, they have no actual allegiance. The opportunity for evil must exist for you to choose good. It's one of the greatest things about who God is and that he's given us all free will. It's a great and wonderful thing and also a horrible burden that we bear because when we choose poorly, we chose poorly. We weren't forced into it. But those who didn't trust Christ, who survived the tribulation and didn't take the mark but didn't accept Jesus, and those who were born during the millennial kingdom, they will have a final test. Satan will be released to tempt them. And even from this perfect condition, this wonderful world, when he is let out of his cage, the sinfulness of man will still rear its ugly head. And there will be people from all four four corners of the earth who will oppose him for one final time. And that's really sad to me. But it is the great burden of humanity because we haven't reached chapters 21 and 22 yet. This is the ultimate eternity, the ultimate future of everything when we receive a new heaven and a new earth where we are, everyone who exists in the new heaven and new earth have been transformed and they've been given their new bodies. That's why Paul writes in Thessalonians that not all of us will go to sleep, but all of us will be changed, referring to the rapture, and that we can't exist in front of God as we are. Our bodies must be changed to be able to be with God physically in heaven. So we must be changed at the time of the rapture. So in the new world and in the new kingdom, in the new heaven and new earth, we will all have a different DNA that doesn't deal with that sin problem. But the millennial kingdom, even though in its perfection, humanity still has that tilt when they are tempted by Satan. Now, I do want to address Gog and Magog. So if you know anything about Ezekiel, um, this is like a huge famous piece of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39 is often referred to as the Magog invasion. So there are some who may view the Gog and Magog invasion as this invasion in chapter 20 after the millennial kingdom, but it doesn't equate. Most commentators will view the, the invasion of Gog and Magog from chapter 38 of Ezekiel as something that happens before the tribulation period. Oftentimes, the commentators think that that might even be the, like, the thing that kicks the world into gear uh, to be ready. So I'll read you a piece of what exists in, in Ezekiel 38. 
So it says, this is verse 14, Therefore, son of man, meaning Ezekiel, prophesy and say to Gog, Thus says the Lord God, on that day when my people in my people Israel dwell safely, will you not know it? Then you will come from your place out of the far north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great company and a mighty army. This is talking about an invasion from the north, from enemies of Israel, at a time when Israel seems secure and safe. Um, there's a little bit more detail early on in verse 2. It's the son of man, Ezekiel, set your face against Gog, the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks into your jaw, and lead you out with all your army, horses, and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer, all of its troops from the house of Tagarma, from the troops from the far north, and all its troops, many people are with you. It also mentions Cush and Put later on. And so when you look at the, it actually gives you geographic details from where the invasion is going to come from. Rosh is modern day Russia. So the prince of Gog and Magog are the prince of Rosh. Um, this is Russia. And then you have all of these other pieces of land, parts of Northern Africa. You have uh, Persia, which is modern day Iran. Um, Meshik and Tubal, Cush and Put. The other main portion of land that this refers to is modern-day Turkey. Uh, and so there will be some sort of military alliance against Israel by likely Russia, Turkey, Iran, uh, and some parts of northern Africa. So they're very close in relation to Israel, uh, and most of this comes out of the north. So that's the Ezekiel 38 Gog and Magog War which many commentators think will kick off or at least push the world right into the tribulation as though that's the next thing that will happen afterwards. This Gog and Magog says that they come from all four corners of the earth. So from extremely far away from Israel, all over the world. So most of the time you'll see a note that maybe this is referring to Gog and Magog as sort of any spiritual enemy of Israel. They sort of get referred to as Gog and Magog because of this great massive invasion that happened before the tribulation as almost myth or legend that gets pointed back to something like that after the millennial kingdom. So they seem to be two separate invasions of Israel, one before the tribulation and one after the millennial kingdom. Um, and you can tell because they come from different areas of the world. Before, very close in relation to Israel and from specific countries. After the Millennial Kingdom, from all over the world, whoever is willing to gather and turn against Christ from all four corners of the earth. There's also some different details in that in Ezekiel 38. You'll see the those who get destroyed in Ezekiel 38 get buried. Those after the Millennial Kingdom get thrown into the lake of fire. Two different endings for those wars. So let's continue. They went up to the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city 
and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Very different from the ending in Ezekiel 38. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So victory over Satan, wholeheartedly, completely done. He's thrown into the lake of fire forever and ever. He'll never tempt anybody again. This is great news. This is also bad news. Because when you see the term lake of, lake of fire and the fact that torment exists forever and ever, that's what scripture says. And so this is great news for those who follow Jesus. Because the next section is something called the great white throne judgment. Now, those who follow Christ, they've already been resurrected. They've existed in the millennial kingdom. They've accepted Jesus and they will move into the new heaven and new earth. They don't have to deal with the lake of fire. They don't have to worry about it at all. This is the greatest news on earth if you're a follower of Christ. If you're not, this is the worst. And this is part of the reason that our mission should always be to share the gospel. Because eternity is real, and eternity is forever. And this idea of choice, Satan was released to give people a choice. They can choose Jesus or they can choose not Jesus. We can do that now. We can choose Jesus, we can choose to follow him, we can choose to accept him, or we can choose not to. And your eternity will rest entirely on your shoulders. God will not force you into his kingdom. God has given you the great gift of free will. And like I said, that gift is also a burden because it is your choice. He's not going to force you to accept him. And he's done everything he can for you. And now it's up to you. Last week when we talked about the point in the Jewish wedding ceremony of consent, everything can be planned. The work can be done. The debt can be paid. But it's still up to you to choose whether or not you will go through with it. And so we get to verse 11, the great white throne judgment. Then I saw a great white throne, him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the book. So earlier, you saw the first resurrection. Those who had accepted Christ, those the tribulation saints who died during the tribulation, the word was beheaded. Those who were beheaded for not taking the mark, right? You saw that earlier in the in this chapter. Now, the word beheaded is really just, it doesn't actually necessarily mean that that will be the form of execution, um, but it is referencing execution in general. We don't know that beheading will actually be the way that they do it. We don't know that guillotines will come back into play in modern day and age, but there will be execution for those who follow Christ in the tribulation period. But when Jesus returns, they will be resurrected and they will reign with him during the millennial kingdom. After the millennial kingdom, this is the second resurrection, the resurrection of the dead, those who did not choose life, those who did not choose Jesus. They were not written in the book of life, so they are brought to be judged. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. So books were opened, and then also the book of life. So what were in the first set of books? 
Well, the first set of books is our ledger. Our ledger. So the ledger of the sinner. Everything we've done, right or wrong, all of our works. Now, if you've chosen Christ, this judgment is not for you. Those books have nothing to do with you because your name is written in the book of life. And when Jesus was on the cross, before he died, he said, it is finished. And in the Greek, that can also be translated, it is paid in full. It's done. Your works are no longer held against you because you are covered by the blood of Christ and this judgment will not cast on you. But those who have made that choice to not accept Christ, it is on their shoulders and the books will be opened in front of them and their ledger will be held out in front of them and they will see that they did not measure up to perfection and they had the opportunity to cover that up and they didn't take it. They didn't accept Christ. It says, The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were with them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. It is simple. This is the gospel in a nutshell. Jesus said, it is finished. Your debt is paid in full. Once you accept that, you are in the book of life. If you are in the book of life, the lake of fire will never touch you. But it is your choice. If you don't accept that and your name is not found in the book of life, then you will be brought before the great white throne at the end of the millennial kingdom and all those who have died in their sin will be brought before, before Christ to be judged according to their works, and all will be thrown into the lake of fire forever and ever. So this is why we do what we do. This is why church exists. This is why the great commission that Jesus gave us, go and make disciples of all nations. It is our job. The book of life needs to have as many names in it as possible. God does not delight in judgment. God delights in mercy and forgiveness, but he is perfect and imperfection cannot be tolerated in his presence. So he gave us a choice. Jesus is the answer. It's paid in full if you just accept it. If someone came to me and said, how much do you have left on your student loans? I will pay it in full. No questions asked. Here's a check. I wouldn't walk away from that deal. Right? Because I understand how heavy a debt just for education is. If I were to look at the, the books that existed with every decision I've ever made, every wrong I've ever had, every hate I've ever felt, every judgment I've ever made that was invalid, every sin that I've ever committed without even knowing it. I know the value of my student loan debt. I can't fathom the debt that's in my ledger. And so I recognize and am so thankful that that debt was paid in full at the cross. 
And that's the message that the world needs because we want as many people in the book of life as possible because it's, it's not a great ending to stand before God at the throne judgment. Now, we will all stand before Jesus at some point. And I can't even fathom it, but if you remember chapter 1, you saw John's vision of Jesus standing white with eyes like lightning, feet like bronze, a sword coming out of his mouth. Just this great, glorious picture of this ultimate God, Jesus, in his glorified state. At some point, all of us will stand in front of him. And I know that when I stand in front of him, I want to be covered by his righteousness because there's no way I can measure up to him without it. And so that's our job and that's our goal. And that's the good news. And so if you have accepted this, chapter 19 and chapter 20, the return of Christ, the setting up of his kingdom, and the quick movement into eternity from chapters 21 and 22 are the best news you can ever hear. But if you know anybody that hasn't accepted it, then it's hard to swallow because you know you want them to. And with that, let's pray. Father God, I just want to say thank you. You have shown us your plan. You've told us what you want to do, what the future holds. God, I don't know what it's going to be like when I get to stand before you at some point. I don't know how I feel, how I'll feel. I don't know what I'll think. I don't know if I'll be able to think. All I know is that at that moment, I will be grateful for the cross and that my sin is covered by your righteousness because of you purchasing me. And God, I pray for those who don't have that who don't have that confidence, who don't know that message, that you give your people the opportunity to share it so they can go into eternity as well, knowing you and being covered rather than having the ledger read before them and being thrown into the lake of fire. Because God, we want to bring as many people into the kingdom with us as possible. And we want to follow your example in your will. We pray that you give us the strength to do that and the humility to know that we could never stand before you if it wasn't for the work you did at the cross so that we don't come across as judgmental, but rather as humble and thankful for the work you did and that you did for us and for them who need to hear it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.